Question number one. That was quick, huh? <laughs> this comes in from an anonymous uh, poster who says, you mentioned in a past session, um, oops. Oh no, that's the wrong question. I was too quick. Where's my notes for question number one? Okay, welcome to the to the Friday q and I'm so completely unprofessional and wrong in every way. But I'm loading the correct question in just a second. I promise I have it here. I feel so embarrassed because I completely got that wrong. But it was all part of an intentional, elaborate April, April Fool's joke. And um, those who get it, get it. And those who don't, you know, you'll think I was just fumbling and bumbling. But you don't know the truth of my incredible humor. My name is Mike Winger. And I'm here to try to answer your questions biblically to the best of my ability, giving you answers, uh, referencing scripture on questions related to Christianity, Jesus, God, the Bible, uh, apologetics, or defending the truth of Christianity, as well as other things. And so I'm going to start again. Here is question number one. For real, this is an anonymous question. And the question is this. My husband has joined a Christian cult where women are taught <clears throat> they'll go to hell if they wear makeup, trousers, jewelry, etc., um, that's a pretty interesting thing there. And I refuse to follow that teaching. He will not listen to the counsel of our pastor. Should I submit to his decision to leave our biblical church and be part of the cult? He now thinks of me as not saved. Am I cons uh, and I'm considering leaving the house. Okay, this is a very multi-layered, complicated question. It has to do with your marriage and what to do in a marriage where there's um, super significant radical spiritual division and disagreement in that marriage. Um, you, it also has to do with the question of like wearing makeup and trousers and jewelry and stuff and whether or not that's something, you know, someone goes to hell over or if that's something basically that God is opposed to, I'll put it that way. And, you know, your husband won't listen to the counsel of your pastor uh, from, I guess, the previous church you were at. And should you submit and all. So, okay, yeah. Should you leave in a, a church you think is good to go to a church you, you believe is like not just not your favorite, but actually bad to go with your husband and be in submission. And I'll say this, um, to try to give a short answer to a, to so many layers of a question is a little bit difficult. But one of the things to consider is, let's just walk through it. Um, is it wrong to wear makeup, trousers, jewelry, etc.? Is that stuff wrong? Um, well, okay, when it comes to trousers, I think the, the position that people have there has to do with women wearing men's clothing. And so, I mean, in scripture, you're not going to see trousers as a thing, right? Like they're just not a clothing item back in the day. So... There is, however, consistent Old and New Testament, very consistent, that it's very important to God, and this is so relevant for our current culture, that men act like men and women act like women, not not uh, macho and overly exaggerated feminine characteristics, that's not the focus, but rather we do have different functions and roles, and that we should engage in those things, and we should like not try to cross the lines. And that's uh, obviously very counterculture, but I think culture is just counter God right now on these topics to our own hurt, causing us great harm and anxiety and pain and suffering to people who are doing that. But the issue with pants or trousers is that trousers are women's clothing too. Like, <laughs> how do you get around this? They, trousers aren't ma man's clothes. And maybe there was a time in history where they were man's clothes, and then it would have been wise and good not to wear them as a woman because it would have been this sort of gender bending thing and yeah so i'm going to suggest trousers is like like are you living in like 1803 like this is this is irrelevant to suggest women can't wear pants unless you're in some culture that thinks that in which case you don't want to send the signals that you're trying to cross genders um with makeup and hair and all that there's actually the scripture that talks about not not having braided hair 
and gold, um, those are considered part of the same thing. And what the the culture of the time was doing in the first century is wealthy women, like in Roman Greco-Roman culture, they would braid their hair and they would weave gold into their hair, gold strands into their hair as a way of signaling their wealth and their status in society. So this is not just against women wearing makeup or women doing their hair. It's against women, and, and this is still a very big issue today, it's against uh, women competing with each other for appearance sakes to try to like establish status and all that through appearance. This is obviously, I think, a huge, obviously huge issue for women even today. That appearance and looks and the 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 beauty that you try to put on yourself. A lot of men look at a girl who's wearing really pretty makeup and they think she did it for me. And and sometimes she's doing it for the for the other women to compete with them, right? To to look at to go for status. And that all such competition is, is just not appropriate for the body of Christ. And of course, there's an issue of potentially lust that could go on there, but that's actually, I think, not the focus of that passage. That passage is about outward, not sexual attractiveness, but outward competitive beauty that we can fall into. So, I okay, now, would I tell a woman that she's going to hell if she's a Christian and she's wearing makeup, too much makeup, too much uh, jewelry, too much of that kind of stuff? Um, no, I just think it would be an unfortunate thing like that's not good that's not healthy but going to hell now you're like ding 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 maybe this is a cult this group my husband has joined maybe this is a cult i wish i knew more about the group i don't know for sure if they're a cult i don't know you know what they if they really what they say about jesus what they say about the gospel but this is deeply concerning because um when you have any church group that takes a very secondary issue and turns it into the whole issue like heaven and hell are on this issue of like say hairstyle that is a big red flag and it's something to be very concerned about so now let's go to the issue how this relates to your marriage and i'll try to offer what i think is biblical counsel on this um you say he won't listen to the to the pastor um so should i submit to his teachings to leave our biblical church and be part of the cult um, my answer to this is if it's truly a cult truly an ungodly actual cult like it's not just like they're off on a few things even off on several things but the, the core of the gospel is still there if it's a cult, no, you shouldn't go. And I think that biblically, this is reinforced because when the Bible talks, people miss this. We miss the forest through the trees sometimes. Um, or is it the way around? Yeah, forest through the trees. Is that how that phrase goes? I'm just going to, you know, even if I say things wrong, just assume it's for April Fool's Day. Just how's that? Um, but what we're missing on this issue is that the Bible never gives husbands this kind of spiritual authority over their wives, that they can tell their wives what kind of worship they're supposed to have before God, that they can make their wives go to church or not go to church or any of those kinds of things. Now, this seems controversial to some, but I'm like reading the scripture and I go, no, what I see in the New Testament is this consistent theme that you serve God first and above all else, that there's no mediator between you and God except Jesus. And that even the husband is, and although I'm going to talk about this as I continue my women in ministry series, the husband's not the priest of his house, I don't think. I don't. I think that this is an incorrect teaching. Um, not that it doesn't stir up nobility in men who want to serve well and lead well in their homes spiritually, right? Yeah, you should be a good spiritual leader, but you're not the mediator between your wife and God. Wives, you have a relationship with God independent of your husbands. And First Peter gives us an example of this. So we're going to look at that real quick. And it talks here, um, wives and husbands. And it gives you the situation of a woman who is married to a pagan man who obviously doesn't want her going to church. 
Like he would be like, no, we're going to the temple of Zeus. We're not going to that church. We're going to the temple of Zeus. But here's what she should do. Like, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So one of your first, you know, chief priorities is that you would have godly conduct in, in yes, yielding to your husband where you can, where you can as honoring God, not in every single way without exception. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adornment be external. Uh, some translations actually put merely external. The braiding of the hair and putting on of gold jewelry. Notice those are put together. That was that com competitive hairstyling. Hair or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now in our culture, they're seeing... Um, Oh, there's a precious telling a woman, you're just submit. He'll do, he'll be better if you just yield to him. Actually, no, no, it doesn't say that at all. He may not get better at all, but you'll be honoring Christ. This is about you and God, your relationship with God. I'm going to honor the Lord in how I love and respect my husband, how I adore myself with character and godliness. Now, of course, it's not good character and godliness to go to a cult and attend there just because your husband tells you to. I think here's where boldness in Christ takes over. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Um, she just, she submitted to him. In their culture, Lord meant something different than it does in English, to be completely honest. It's just the tough translation. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So the, um, uh, by the way, husbands, you're, you're, you're a, uh, your prayers can be hindered if you don't honor your wives and and, and honor them and um, have understanding with them. How, isn't that interesting? So the idea here is that you've got a, a, a woman who is married to a guy who's not obeying the word. And so she seeks to be a great wife to him, but she's still seeking to honor God first. And so when... Um, when the apostles are told, don't worship God, they're like, yeah, you can, you can do what you want to us. We're still going to worship God. When a, a wife has an unbelieving husband, she's still going to serve and honor and love God. But she's going to do it in a way where the husband will see that the only way she resists him is, um, you know, obviously she resists any evil he tries to put on her. But the only way she resists his, like, got his appropriate husband leadership, the only way she resists that is when she's yielding in submission to God. Now, this may cause him to hate your religion and your faith and your walking with Christ because he'll see it as comp competition between him and God. But that's his fault. You're honoring God. Um, so should you leave the house? No. No, no, no. Not unless there's some really extreme situations going on. This is this is your chance to show the love of Christ to someone. When Jesus dies on the cross for us, he's, he's there saying, you hate me, but I love you. You wound me, but I, I serve you. you. You do this to me, but I take your sin upon myself that I might show you the love of God and bring you, give you a chance to be restored. Be patient. Don't be in a hurry right now. Don't make quick decisions, but, but serve God by staying in that marriage and doing your part, even if he doesn't do his. Obviously, if there's extreme abuse situations going on, that's a whole different scenario. Uh, if you have to flee for safety, you flee for safety. But, um, yeah, I, I think that that's the biblical thing is, is we stay loyal and faithful to our spouses, even when they, are not doing the right thing for us. And, and I, that's the rule I have for myself. It's a rule that I think God has for all of us. We'll go to question number two now. This is from Steve Perry, who says, why does Moses refer to himself as Yahweh in Deuteronomy 29.6? 
Let's go to that passage, Deuteronomy 29, verse 6. And I'm taking 20 questions today, as I do um, pretty much every Friday, just almost every Friday. Sometimes I'm not able to, but taking your questions from the live chat, trying to give you guys a biblical answer as much as I'm able to, at least point you to the scripture. So Deuteronomy 29, 6 says, You've not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Okay, so you're interpreting this one, Steve, as uh, Moses is the one saying, I am the Lord. And that, that word L-O-R-D, how it's capitalized on your screen there, the O, the R, and the D are like in small capitals. That's like the translator's way of hinting to us all that that's the Hebrew name of God in, in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Um, there's debate on how that, that should be pronounced, but we're the yad Hey vav Hey, these four Hebrew consonants, and then the vowels and pronunciation are a bit of a debate. But let's back up and just see kind of like a greater context here. We'll start in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 29 and we'll ask, is Moses calling himself Yahweh here? These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel. Okay, so there's there's a covenant and they're words that God commanded Moses to make. So these words are not coming initially from Moses, they're ultimately coming from God. In the land of Moab, beside, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all the all Israel to him and said to them, You have seen that the Lord did before your eyes, all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. So in verse 2, Moses is speaking of God in the second person. So it's Moses' voice, or he's the perspective that is speaking, and he talks about God in the second person. The Lord did these things before your eyes. The great trials that... um, that your eyes saw the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You've not eaten bread and you've not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, now he's obviously starting in verse 5. It's it's as though he's speaking as if he is God or he's, he's, he's relaying words from God. Let's keep reading though. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. Um, So we then have another, now there's a we here at the end. Okay, so I did this, and then there's the we did this. Um, So I, I think that if, I guess to give this better context, I just have to give you my personal experience, having read much of the prophets of the Bible and much of the of the way that God speaks through the prophets. And this sort of thing happens a lot where a prophet will speak and Moses was also a prophet, right? And he'll speak and it's obviously he's getting this from the Lord. This is not just himself. And he'll speak from his perspective. You saw what the Lord did. And then without a beat switches over to God's perspective. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. And you might say, well, Mike, why would you say he's just seamlessly switching to God's perspective? Well, for one reason, we see this consistently in the Old Testament. It happens all the time with prophecy. There's just this seamless switching to God's perspective, back to the prophet speaking, back to God speaking. And you just have to be kind of like an, a thoughtful reader to notice these things. But there's also the very, the very nature of what's happening. I have led you for 40 years in the wilderness. In the book of Deuteronomy, in Exodus, it is God is the one that leads Israel. He's very active in it. And so if if you're reading the full context of the passage, you know, the pillar of fire, the cloud that by day, that it was God who led them. And, you know, when um, 
when he tells him he's going to lead them out of Egypt, it's always God who's doing the leading. So this, I have led you for 40 years in the wilderness is a clue that the person is the person who is I is changed. It's not just Moses. It's, it's God speaking here. On top of that, we have Moses was a prophet and they often speak directly the words of God like that. So that, that would be my answer to that. And I, again, I just think whenever we have a question like this, we just, you just go and you look at the context, read the verse, read the passage. It's, it's not magic. It's just patience to read scripture in context and it will answer so many of our questions for us. Here's an anonymous question. And it says the Beatitudes in Luke 6, 20 through 21, seem to have a different emphasis than those in Matthew 5. Physical poverty slash hunger in Luke versus spiritual poverty slash hunger in Matthew. Much of the discourse in Luke 6 seems to cover similar teaching points as the Sermon on the Mount. So should the Beatitudes in Luke be understood as the same as those in Matthew? If they're different, what is the takeaway from Luke's Beatitudes? What a, what a very thoughtfully crafted message. Um, I appreciate that. So let's just read them real quick. So Matthew 5, actually, you no, know, I'm going to do, I'm going to start with Luke 6 because that's what people are less familiar with. Everyone knows the Beatitudes in Matthew. Luke 6, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of, of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Then he, and then he gives woes, which that doesn't happen in Matthew 6. Woe to those who are rich now and all that. Um, so we do see here, um, you're weeping, you're going to laugh, you're, you're hungry, you're going to be satisfied. It just says hungry, whereas like say Matthew, let's go to Matthew. It's, it'll say hunger for righteousness, right? So Matthew 5, then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the qualifier, they're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That's very similar to Luke. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed, and there's more. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then it has the same thing that we found in Luke. For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and, and tells them even to rejoice. So there's, you know, if they're persecuted. So there's a lot of like parallels, but then there are some differences. What do I do with these things? Um, so a lot of people actually notice that the Matthew 5 passage happens up on the mountain. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and others will notice as well that the Luke passage happens on a plain. Um, they'll even call it the Sermon on the Plain. And um, I'm trying to find the, the exact verse, which I guess you'll just have to look at the context more to see where Jesus is traveling at the time. And so they'll say, hey, maybe there's two different things. But, but let me just add and others will say no no the sermon on the mountain plain are the same thing because it was like a mount that had a flat surface and that's fair okay they're not using super technical geographic terminology here they're not doing geography they're <laughs> they're just describing where they were at so it it could be uh, describing the same location but know this jesus repeated himself far more than we realize he would have taught the same 
stuff or very similar things in multiple locations. And one of the reasons we know this is because he's traveling from town to town to preach, quote, the gospel. Meaning that one one parable, for instance, let's say one parable, Jesus may have told the same exact parable different ways in different places. The, the disciples may have heard the same parable, not word for word, always the same. They might have heard it slightly adjusted because he's making a slightly different point. I know that when I give examples of things, I do the same thing as a teacher. I repeat myself, but not nearly as much as itinerant preachers. Itinerant preachers who travel from place to place to place, they go to a new town. These people haven't heard anything you've said yet. You got to start over. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, we read Matthew, Luke, we're very likely reading different times when Jesus spoke and he's sharing different things. And so I, we, we can say, for instance, that when Jesus is quoted as saying this word for word, he may well have said it word for word and then said it this way word for word and that way word for word. There's quite a lot of variety that can exist there. Um, now, what I would do with it, you're like, if they are different, okay, what's the main takeaway from Luke's Beatitudes? Um, uh, for that, I think that what you have to do is you start fresh and you do a study and you look at how Luke's Beatitudes fit in the overall flow of the Gospel of Luke. Notice, I would actually make a list. You know, I'd sit down and I'd write, here's all the qualities in Matthew's Beatitudes that aren't in Luke's. So those ones are not there. Here's all the qualities in Luke's that aren't in Matthew's. And then I would try to find an emphasis that is, you know, here's why it was said differently in this place. He's pointing out different things. He's focused on different issues. Then I would bring that into a stronger application. As a preacher, as a teacher, I would be like, hey, I'm going to lean on this as the emphasis in Luke versus the emphasis in Matthew. Yeah. There's my thoughts. In addition to that, you can say they also can inform one another. So we look at Matthew's Beatitudes, which are more, more detailed. There's more, more information there. And we can, we can look at that to help us understand the heart of what Jesus was getting in, in Luke's as well. So there's something of an art to the whole thing. Let's go to question number four. This is from Phil of Laughter. Oh, Pill of Laughter. <laughs> Not Phil. Pill of Laughter says, Hey, Mike, hope you're doing well. When reading Genesis 3.16, especially in the King James Version, I'm under the impression that Adam and Eve were not cursed, but only the earth. Could you please weigh in on this? Uh, let's go to the passage. This was a comment I received uh, like many times in my video I did on um, Women in Ministry Part 2, where we went through the Genesis account. Let's just look at the passage. The question is, right, who was cursed? I kept saying the curse of Ad on Adam, the curse on Eve. I was using that phrase, the curse on Adam, the curse on Eve. And several people pushed back and were like, no, 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 Eve wasn't cursed. Adam wasn't cursed. It was the, the ground that was cursed. So I'm going to back up and we're going to read for some context. But I'm also going to pull up um, the King James Version. And increase the font size for you guys. Okay, so the, the first thing that happens is uh, God says to the serpent, um, because thou hast, hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the, and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and they shall and thy desire shall be to thine husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, 
thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Or shalt thou return. I don't usually read out loud King James. <laughs> so, um, uh, the um, to me, the reason why I'm going to push back on the on on this observation that people make, I thought it was the ground that was cursed. I thought it was 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 the ground, not them. Eve wasn't cursed. Adam wasn't cursed. Um, is two things. One, uh, I don't think it's an either or situation. Okay, so unto the woman he says. I'm going to greatly multiply whose sorrow, her sorrow and her conception. Look, if we're going to say the ground was cursed because bad things happened to the ground, then why wouldn't we say Eve was cursed because she experiences great suffering? But if we're going to say the ground was cursed because bad things happened to the ground, aren't we going to say that Adam was cursed because he's going to die? That's definitely a bad thing that happens to him, not the ground. If we're going to say that the ground was cursed, another option is, well, but the word cursed is used of the ground. The word cursed is used of the ground. It's not used of Adam. Um, that, I think, is refuted by the New Testament. If you're going to say that's, you know, only the thing is cursed that has the word curse associated with it. I think that as you read the passage, if if what happens to the ground is a curse because bad things result, then isn't what happens to even Adam also a curse? But also in the New Testament seems to affirm that that we are all under the curse. We people are under the curse. And that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse. Redeemed us, not just the ground, but us as well. So I think it's a blanket curse. It, it's upon creation and people. But the reason creation is cursed is for thy sake, right? That's He says, I'll curse the ground for thy sake, that Adam, because of you, the ground is cursed. So the the primary focus of the curse is humans. And the overflow is creation, just as Jesus' primary focus in redemption is humans, and the overflow of his redemption is all of creation. So I, I think that, that um, that's my, my perspective on it for you guys to consider at least and think about. Kate has a question. Hi, Mike. I'm turning 18 this year, and I've been a Christian for two years now. I'm looking at colleges now because I'm um, a junior in high school. Any advice for looking at colleges and going into adulthood? Um. Uh, sure. <laughs> well, um, happy, happy coming birthday, 18, 18 years old, Kate. So I could give you, you know, tons of advice. Uh, the best advice comes from people who actually know you well, um, who actually can see you and they, they understand how you fit in the world. You know, that's the best advice that you can get. So I, I would say, actually listen to people who have advice around you, but look at the adults who can see you with hope in their eyes. What I mean by that is, um, some people, they see you at 18, 17, but they really see the 12-year-old version of you and they can't, they can't see who you're becoming and who you're, who you're growing into. That person's not going to be a great source of advice because they think you're limited by your past, but other people don't know anything about you. And so then they're not that great for advice either because they're just like, you can do anything you imagine, anything you set your mind to. And you're like, no, you can't. Like, that's not the reality we live in. <laughs> And so it's helpful to find people who are in between, people who realistically know you but have a real hope for your future and an excitement about what, what might happen. Um, 
those people are good for sources for advice and counsel. They could see gifts in you that you might not notice because they're so easy. They're, they're natural to you, so you don't realize that they're there. Um, also, for college, is you know, don't just. I'm just going to try to give wisdom. I think from Proverbs here, which is the idea of asking yourself if this is a worthwhile investment before you get into it. Don't just go into college and you're like six months in, and people are like, "What's your major?" and you're like, oh, "I don't know." Um, pick a path that looks like it'll lead to realistic employment in the future. That this, this I say this is Proverbs wisdom because it's about consequential thinking about your future. Is this really worthwhile? Is this college degree going to actually assist me in practical ways in the future? Or am I just kind of like throwing years of my life and tons of money at something that may or may not pan out? But I don't know what else to do. So I'm just going to try it. So I'm going to suggest that you come up with a plan. It's, it's much better to have a plan for a career that you decide to change later than to have no plan. And then if you you know, if you still never really figure out what you want to do, you've got no like sort of collateral moving your life towards a specific agenda. As a Christian, you might be thinking the world's getting darker and maybe um, maybe Jesus is coming back. And that's true, he might. But I would not encourage failing to plan for your retirement, right? Your whole life and your even your retirement because you think Jesus is going to come back. Because I think that that's something I started to fall into when I was about your age. Like, is it even worth it to go to college? Like, what's the point? You know, am I even going to have an opportunity to, is Jesus even going to wait another five years? And I think that what that was is I was involved with a group of people who were very excited about the return of Christ, but a little bit short-sighted about their ability to predict his return. <laughs> so um, so I think that that's an encouragement I would give you is, is actually plan. I want to be like serving the Lord well and faithfully in my life every day, every year, so that whether he comes back now or comes back when I'm 80, maybe I just go to him when I pass that either way, I will have had a well done, my good and faithful servant at the end of it, instead of, well, you thought I was coming back, but you were wrong, you blew it. So yeah, consider the investment, is this actually worth it? Um, when it comes to colleges, obviously, you, now especially, you might wanna research into the kind of education you're getting. Sometimes as a Christian, because in, in our universities and colleges, they're, they're indoctrinating specific worldview issues into the students that are just not true. And so what happens is you have a student who, as a Christian, you're learning the material of the class and you're trying to do worldview and philosophy stuff that is in addition to your education to try to understand the worldview problems of what you're hearing. As a Christian, I'm like, uh, this is just how it is. <laughs> That's how it is. Um, you're going, you're like Daniel going into a secular education environment where there is real education, but there's also worldview stuff that is simply not true and you have to be wiser than those around you you got to work harder than those around you or you're just going to go with the flow and you'll be like so many who go into college and they walk out spiritually stupid uh, but with a degree and and that does happen plenty of times but if you're going to be diligent do your work and like actually research these things look into some apologetics things then you walk out even more prepared to witness and minister to your culture. So there's my thoughts. Uh, Kate, don't be overwhelmed. Everyone goes through this. My last encouragement to you, don't be overwhelmed. Everybody goes through this. It's scary moving towards adulthood. It's intimidating heading into these things. You're like, how on earth am I going to even make enough money to live? Everyone goes through that. Just one step at a time. Come up with a plan. Do your best to achieve it. Serve God to the best of your ability in the midst of it. And trust in him to take care of you. Mike Grigas says... 
Does 1 Corinthians 5 verses 12 to 13 mean we shouldn't pass laws to ban abortion for outsiders? Thanks for your ministry. Oh, Mike, I love you, brother. <laughs> you guys give me a chance to talk about things that I'm like, thank you. That's such a great opportunity. I hear this verse quoted wrong all the time, misused, abused by well-meaning, well-intending pastors and Christians. And so it's a great chance to talk about it. Paul says, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Let me go to a, a translation that's not quite as old. Um, here's say the ESV. We'll do this one instead. First Corinthians 5 verses 12 and 13. Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, how I often hear this part um, quoted, they'll, they rarely will do verse 13, the whole verse. They'll just get to halfway through verse 13. Um, the way I often heard, hear this highlighted portion quoted is to say, Hey, you know, Christians, you have a reputation for judging people in the church, outside the church. Like you're look at the world and you're like, you're sinners. And you, what are you doing? Who, who do you, who are you to judge them? And that is absolutely nothing that Paul's talking about. He has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever. That's completely contrary to his point. Another point that you're bringing up is, hey, you know, someone told me that maybe we shouldn't pass laws to ban abortion for outsiders because who are we to judge outsiders? Um, the the answer to this is that that this is forcing a context onto the scripture that doesn't exist. So in the first century church in Corinth, do you, does anybody think anybody think that the Corinthians were passing the Corinthian Christians were passing laws? L laws have nothing to do with this whatsoever. Nothing whatsoever. This is about purging the evil person from among you. Christians that live worldly and ungodly lifestyles who continue to go into fellowship and they're living not just any sin, but gross sin or worse kinds of sin, ongoing and unrepentant, and they won't listen to rebuke, purge them from among you. He says, you got to get them out because little leaven's going to leaven the lump or they're going to infect the church. The church will become ungodly too. This is the context. Let's just back up and see what Paul's really talking about. It has nothing to do with passing laws. Governments, if, okay, let me just throw this out there too, because it's well-meaning, but super harmful to be to believe that this verse means you shouldn't pass laws about abortion. So in Romans thirteen, we hear that the the um, the uh, the servant of the government bears the sword by God's command that this is something God wants, and they're going to punish the evildoer. Okay, so that that's a good thing in Scripture, but here someone's quoting this verse that would abolish all laws of all kinds if those laws are being written by Christians. Do you see how this creates total conflict between the scripture, like this verse taken out of context to do that? Because if I can't say abortion is wrong and should be stopped, legally speaking, because you know all humans have a human right to life, like this is kind of foundational to all humanity and all government is that humans have a right to lot to live and not be killed and those are little baby humans um and so if i do that then i then i should also say that we can't pass laws against any murder of any kind we can't pass laws against like speeding or stealing what why can we pass any laws at all because this is it's so reckless and so short-sighted to look at scripture like this um let's back up and look at it from verse nine 
Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, Paul doesn't want Christians who, to, to be, he doesn't want the world to look and see Christian. Here's a group of Christians, and several of them are sexually immoral, actively ungodly sexual lifestyles. That's what he doesn't want. It will harm the church. It will harm our reputation as well. So he goes, I wrote to you not to associate with them, but he puts a caveat on it. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. That's what he's talking about with judging the world. He goes, I'm not telling you, Christians, isolate yourself from ungodly people altogether. He's just saying, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or is an idolater or a reviler, drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. You could go have a meal with this non-believer. You could go and associate and, and talk to these people who are outside of Christ who are living ungodly lives. But if they're in Christ, if they claim and name the name of Christ, I'm a Christian and they're living ongoing ungodly lives, you need to disassociate from them as a way of trying to restore them into repentance. This is a very unpopular and almost never practiced biblical teaching. Um, or sometimes it's done wrongly in, in pop culture. It's done wrongly, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the way they do things like this. And so then we feel like we can't do it. But it's biblical. So when he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Right? He's like, hey, God's going to judge them. He means final judgment, not, not abortion laws. Okay? He's just saying, don't... Um, feel that the high standards of, of Christian behavior and requiring, if there's unrepentant, ongoing extreme sin, requiring disassociation with somebody, don't think that that applies to the whole world. God's going to judge them. Let's just evangelize them. But when they come to the church, there is this, 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 this wall of repentance that they have to pass. They got to walk through it. They got to say, yeah, I do repent of that lifestyle. I do turn from those wicked ways. And this is something that, um, I think in, in modern churches, a lot of modern churches, maybe it's just America. I, I mean, I'm American, so what do I know about what goes on somewhere else? But we, we feel that requiring repentance for those who follow Jesus is going to really hinder the growth of our church. And I think that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was written. Um, what's the point in growing your church if you're going to grow it like that? All right, number seven. And we, we've got all 20 questions. The questions are full today, guys. So I'm going to walk you through these remaining ones. And I'm um, sorry if you've tried to get your question in and I wasn't able to answer it. Nothing personal. Um, you could always go to the website, BibleThinker.org. And we have two search features. One of them just searches for videos in general. And the other one, this is the one I want you to know about. It's called the clip search feature. You click on that and you could type in, you know, some of the words of your question. And it will search hundreds of videos to see if there's even a moment in the video where I address that issue. And you will just get to watch that exact moment. So that's on BibleThinker.org because of some wonderful volunteers. Um, we've had been able to like catalog and put all that data there so we can have it freely available for you. So um, anonymous question coming in here. Are things with proven or supposed pagan origins such as wedding rings or birthday candles to be avoided according to scripture or are they able to be redeemed? Um, well, it... it it depends. So I, I think what we have to do is add layers of nuance onto this issue about pagan things. Um, so wedding rings, I don't know if that wedding rings or birthday candles actually have pagan origins, but not to my knowledge. And I've looked into that a little bit, but didn't find anything. Um, but what we have to distinguish is between something a pagan did 
and something that is pagan. So for instance, pagans throughout the world have been feeding their children for years before Christianity even was around. So is feeding your children pagan? No, obviously not, right? Obviously not, because that was something pagans did, but it wasn't something that was pagan. So the question is if the practice has connotations that are ungodly and, and doctrinally false. And if the practice does, we don't want to do it. But if the practice is just a thing that pagans did that isn't inherently pagan, then do it all you want. It doesn't matter. Now, this even gets perhaps a little more flexible because when we look at the Old Testament, we see things like the use of um, circumcision in Israel. So in the ancient Near East, there were other cultures that used circumcision for various reasons. But God takes circumcision and he gives it to Israel as something for all the men of Israel and something to symbolize, I think, some really interesting and neat things. It, there's a cutting off or of a, a removal of the, of, of the flesh, which in the New Testament times symbolizes sin. So it's about being, and it talks about having circumcised hearts. So like That's the idea is I'm putting off my, my, my carnal desires. It's intimate. You might say it's kind of gross, but that's the whole idea is it's sort of visceral of like this, the picture of what it means. But that's, there's a very biblical and Christian and Jewish meaning to circumcision that is different than whatever it meant to the cultures around it. So here's a practice that was shared by pagans and shared by Israel, which is itself a very Jewish practice. It's not pagan because of what it means to them. Then there's, um, so so like for instance, like if, if you say, well, uh, there's Christmas trees are pagan because the, the the people of the past would bring trees into their homes and celebrate Asherah or whatever whatever lies you've heard on the internet <laughs> on this stuff. Um, um, my thought is, even if that was true, the, the the tree in a Christmas celebration for a Christian doesn't have any of those connotations to it. And so I, I look at it and I go, I don't really, I'm not worried about this. Now, on the other hand, let's say that um, you worship, you know, this false God by, by killing your children. And then over here, you're thinking, well, I know it was pagan, but now it's Christian. I'm going to kill my children. Obviously, there's a problem there. What I'm suggesting here is the word pagan is too broad of a term to just throw on practices everywhere and tell people they can't do them. What we need to do is look at the practice and ask things like, is it pagan in its nature and in its practice, not just in its past association? We have to ask things like, is it uh, something that is ultimately honoring to Christ? Is it something that connects to doctrinal things that are good or doctrinal things that are bad? Is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? Does it cause confusion culturally between the difference between Christianity and, say, some other religious group? Um, is it creating a bridge? Here's another one. Is it creating a bridge between Christians and, say, New Age practices? That's a, that's a bad thing. That, that, that's a health issue, health and safety issue. Like this is a gateway to other things that are causing problems. So I, I think we have to have wisdom and insight and be kind of very adult and thoughtful about how we work through those issues. I don't see any problem with wedding, wedding rings or birthday candles in any way, um, personally. Edward Schaefer has a question, says, I have some past sins that are pretty bad and very shameful. Do I need to confess these sins to my family and friends? I've confessed them to God and a personal pastor. Edward, this is a really tough one. Um, um, some people will, will, will give you a quick gut reaction answer. And in general, I don't like listening to people who give answers before understanding all the details of an issue. Um, so 
to really answer you, Edward, <clears throat> I'd have to know a lot more about your scenario. And I'm just not available for a lot of private counseling, unfortunately, because of my time. I just spent all my time studying. Um, but here are some principles that I would try to apply and ask you to consider as you work through this. Um, the past sin, uh, is it, was it a sin against the person that knowing that, that had a, a real effect on them? So for instance, uh, a time when this can be good is, Hey, I stole money from so-and-so it was 20 years ago, but I stole money from them. I've repented of it, but you, you actually caused them harm. Maybe they don't even know it was you. So you should probably go to them and deal with that and, and repent and seek to restore it, actually pay it back. You know, when Matthew, the tax collector, came to follow Jesus, he announced, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay back anybody, whatever I've owed, I'll pay them, I'll pay them back. Um, and that was, that was great. That was a great thing to do that. Now, he didn't chase down everybody he'd ever taken too much from. He didn't spend his whole life just tracking those people down, but he did make an effort for restitution. Um, but let's say that instead your, your issue was, oh, I was secretly lusting after this person. And so I feel like I've really wronged them. I, I think I'll go tell them. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's your flesh that wants you to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to announce to this person my desires for them physically, you know, to repent. It's like, well, obviously there's wisdom there that says like, dude, keep it to yourself. Like they didn't know, they weren't involved. They, you didn't do them any harm to themselves that, that they felt. You can repent um, between you and the Lord on that issue. So it depends on the issue. Now, it, it could also be a secret thing where like you actually had an affair on a spouse and you're thinking, well, I've repented of it, but I've never told them. Well, you should tell them because you actually had an affair. Like you violated the marriage in its most uh, sacred fashion. And so that would be, do you get what I'm saying? Is like, I want to, I want to weigh things like, did they, do they know about it? Are, um, was it, was it openly against them in a way that affected them and impacted them? Or was it something that was only going on, only going on in my heart? Um, if you told, let's say you told some, you, you, you gossiped about somebody you tore down their reputation, but you're able to fix it by going to that person who you said that to and, and you tell them, Hey, I, I was, I, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. And, and here I'm going to fix it. But let's say that you did it to 20 people. That now you've had a much bigger effect. I, I'm more inclined to have you go to the person and repent. So those are the those are the things that I would consider as I'm working through that, Edward. If I was you, um, <clears throat> resist the onslaught of feeling the need to go and confess every sin to every person um, every time. I, I think that that is actually that is not a kindness. That's something we we can end up doing for our own catharsis, like to make me feel better about those things that can actually cause wounds to people unnecessarily. And so that's why you want to process these things and ask, would, would the loving thing be to talk to them about this or to not? Number nine, Christine says, my friend has always been a strong Christian and is now struggling with same-sex attraction. He has adopted progressive thoughts on the Bible. How can I encourage him otherwise? Um, Christine, I just did a, a, a video. You, maybe you've seen it. Um, it's been doing really well as far as online. And so, but it, it was about progressive Christianity. It was about like trying to find the core, the central view. What, what is the belief that's behind progressive Christianity? And one of the reasons for this is because I want to have conversations like you. I want to be able to talk to people about this. And one of the core beliefs of progressive Christianity is that my inner sense of like um, desires, the desires I have are pointing me towards the truth spiritually in life. And um, I, if I have same-sex desires, then it, that must be something that is good, that is healthy, that is something God wants me to engage in. And the the question I would have for a friend like this is, 
it just is it possible that your desires are not really your a good guide for you right now is that possible and i would start there is it possible and if your desires are not just just be hypothetical with them if your desires are not a good guide for you on the kind of life you should seek are you open to turning from it to uh, resisting those desires and honoring god in 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 not engaging in that stuff and um Maybe one follow-up question is like, can the Bible correct you on this issue? If the Bible does in fact teach you that it's wrong, will you submit? This is a big hypothetical because this isn't even about like, logically is this realistic, but this is about willingness. Are you, in your will, in your heart, if the Bible tells you that what you're doing is wrong, are you willing to turn from that thing? And if the answer to that question is no, then I'm, I'm sorry, Christine, There's I don't know where else to go because preaching or talking or explaining i don't think it matters anymore progressive christianity is a band-aid on top of the intentional rebellion of the heart in that case so you know talking about oh but this verse in context doesn't matter because i'm not willing to follow god on this issue if he's not going to lead me where i feel like i want to go so those are some of the things now if if there is that willingness if there is like a yes i'm willing then you target issues one at a time, patiently, thoughtfully. You're going to be doing some research of your own. You're going to find out his teachers. Start writing down the points that they're making. Start bringing up refutations that you think are helpful. And maybe point them to maybe some of my videos. I deal with a lot of progressive Christian slogans and stuff like that. And I um, hope that you find those things helpful. Kai Morana says, as a kid, my mom taught me to treat others as you would want them to treat you. I remember living this, but didn't know it came from Jesus. Does this show you can do God's will without realizing it? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you can. I have no no problem with that as a Christian. Um, the idea with Jesus is not that, or let, let me back up and say this. The idea about Christian views of morality is not that humans don't know about morality without Christianity entering the picture and telling them. That is not the Christian belief. The Christian belief is the, is, is the opposite of that, right? Because in Romans 1 through 3, the so three chapters of Romans, it lays out that humans have a conscience and so they know right from wrong. And we don't know it perfectly. Let me get back to that. But we do know right from wrong innately because God has put in us, right, an awareness of goodness and badness. Just like he creates uh, the world in a way that we naturally know that God exists. So if we're listening, if we don't become calloused. Now, our knowledge of God as well as our knowledge of morals can get skewed and messed up, but it is innate. There's an innate sense of fairness and rightness and goodness that we're aware of. It doesn't mean we are fair, right, and good. We're aware of fair, right, and good, right? The, the sad thing about humans is we're aware of right and good and fair, and we do things that are unfair, not right, and, aren't, and not good. So, yes, you can absolutely do God's will in the sense of doing moral good things without realizing that that's coming from God. That's his command to you. There's all sorts of confusion that can be going on in your life. There's things you're just ignorant of um, or have been lied to or whatever. So yeah, absolutely you can. Um, now with Christianity, what happens is you you take your sense of right and wrong, right? Which is going to be a little bit off, a little bit on. It's going to be a mixed bag. And you then bring Jesus into the picture and he kind of becomes... And the scripture, right, the word of God and Jesus become this like corrective device for your sense of moral goodness. So with, say, trans issues, I'm like, hey, I want to affirm you. I want to love you. I want to embrace you. 
but I also realized that God has made us male and female. And I'm talking about trans, not people who are intersex, because if you change the subject, you'll never think clearly about this issue for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, but, uh, but for someone who's trying to do trans things, it's like you go, hey, man, you know, God has made you male and female. That's part of his purpose in creation. Your design comes from your designer. It doesn't come from your heart and your desires, right? It comes from the designer, not your desires. And so I get a compass, a correction that says, oh, so the way to show love and compassion to people who are experiencing gender dysphoria is to say, hey, this is not helping you. Your confusion here is not not blessing you. It's not helping you. It's not good. It's not true. And I don't fall into the errors, say, of our culture on those issues. That's just an example that might help show how our consciences can be corrected by the scripture. So I always think of conscience with the analogy of a compass. Compasses point north, but they don't point true north, right? They point magnetic north, not true north. Here's an interesting consideration. Um, you know, the closer you get to the true north, the more the compass is off. What's pulling it off is is the actual mag the magnetic pole of the earth. Here, by analogy, I'll say our world is pulling our knowledge of goodness to the side because that's the direction the world's going. So it's magnetically pulling your compass off. It's messing up your discernment about good and evil. And the closer you get to God, the closer you get to true north, the closer you get to his word and Jesus, the more you realize how far off it is and the more you're able to actually correct it. Number 11, Por Porfirio says, pastors have preached about this still small voice that approached Elijah when he was distressed in the caves. Is this something we're supposed to be waiting and staying still to listen to? Um, let me say this, not based on the passage. Um, so there's sometimes pastors will, will say something that's true and they'll just use a verse to support it that doesn't really support it that well. This might be one of those, sort of one of those moments, sort of, I'll, I'll try and offer a caveat there. Um, so Elijah, he's, you know, he's, he's upset, he's you know, gone through all kinds of hardship. He's basically had a real high spiritual moment followed by a real low spiritual moment. And he feels like he's alone. He's the only one that cares about God in his country. And so God comes to him and, and there's, there's a fire, but he doesn't speak in the fire. There's a storm, but he doesn't speak in the storm. There's all these things. And then God speaks in a still small voice. Now that passage isn't interpreted for us. Um, so when, when a pastor uses it, to say, hey, um, Porfirio, what you need to do is stop and be quiet. And if you're not quiet enough, you won't be able to hear God's still small voice. I think that we're adding tons to the text of scripture here. For instance, where does it say this ever happened again? That's one issue. I, I don't see anywhere else where what happened to Elijah happened to someone else. Here's another issue. So, so, we, so we can't take it and make it a principle for everyone. We're being taught something about God, but how do I act like everyone's supposed to have Elijah's experience? Um, two, we're allegorizing things. The storm and the fire, we're allegorizing to like TV and social media and your cell phone. Like, but that's not what it's actually about in Elijah. So now we're, we're sort of hijacking the scripture there. Um, another issue is Elijah had an audible voice. It was a still small voice, but it was an audible voice, like a quiet voice. God has great power. Elijah, God showed you he could smash you. He could ruin you, but he speaks to you quietly. This is God's grace to Elijah. This is God being kind and gracious and, and gentle to Elijah. We could just smash him for being silly. And um, 
And so, yeah, when he says, you know, Porfirio, you need to listen to the still small voice. If you're going to apply Elijah directly to your life, this means that you're actually getting physically quiet so you can actually hear an audible voice from God. But that's not what your pastor means. What he means is spend time in prayer, spend time quiet, spend time meditating on the Lord so that you know, maybe the Holy Spirit might direct your mind to something, your heart to something, might lead you to something. And I think all that's true as long as you say might. Yes, God can can inspire you with a thought, lead you in a direction, give you an idea, reveal something to you. I've had countless times where in prayer, I'm praying for wisdom. And like literally as soon as I'm like, Lord, I just pray for wisdom on this issue. I'm like, oh, I've been worried about for hours. And all of a sudden, I completely know what to do. That's happened many times. I don't call that God's still small voice because I think I'm wrongly allegorizing an event in the Old Testament. You can do some allegories, but I think in this case, it's not justified. So I think that what I've had is a word of wisdom from the Lord, right? That's a different thing. So yes, it's good for you to um, spend time thinking about the Lord, praying in the word, asking that God might guide and direct your life, realizing that he doesn't always have to do that. It's not some guarantee. It's not like a contract. If you get quiet and you meditate, God has to speak to you. No, uh, often, oftentimes he wants you to just, I think, from my experience anyway, that God wants you to actually just go and move forward making wise choices and not depending on moment-to-moment instructions because then we become sort of um, weak people who not spiritually leaning on God for his strength, but weak like insecure about the things God's revealed in his word and not willing to make decisions and move forward in our lives as wise people uh, should. So yeah, I hope that helps. I may have ruined uh, a preaching passage, but I just don't, I just don't think that Elijah's story was meant to create a launch pad for pastors to talk about having devotional time daily. I just don't think that was the purpose of the passage. Okay, here's an anonymous question. It says, God has blessed my life and I know it could be worse, but I'm severely disabled. And sometimes I feel so trapped in my body that I want to die, but know that I can't. How do I learn to be content? So, um, let me take you to a scripture. Um, Um, this is, this is not your scenario, right? He's not going through the same thing as you, but Paul, the apostle talks about the, the battle between wanting to get out of this body, out of this life and into the arms of Christ. And, um, let's read a little bit about that. So he says, uh, yes, and I will rejoice for, I know this is Philippians 1, 18 and 19. We're going to keep reading for, I know that through your prayers and through the help of the spirit of Uh, Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's in prison and he's expecting to get out. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always in Christ, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I'll never stop noticing this about Paul the Apostle. Um, He's not the only one, but I just see it in his letters a lot, is he literally views his current life circumstances through how they glorify Christ. And he doesn't do this as like a little band-aid to make him feel better about his life. He does it in a way that's like, I rejoice because even though this horrible thing is happening, Christ is going to be honored in my life. Whether, whether I live or die, Christ will be honored. And the honor to Christ is so worthy that that gives me reason to rejoice in the middle of any circumstance. Paul is an example for us of someone who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he sees other things as painful, difficult, but they're, they're not the main plot. 
The main plot is the glory of Christ in his life. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's how he summarizes how he views the world in his life. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he looks at the benefits of it. He goes, hey, if I'm going to live on in the flesh, there's going to be some benefits that come for the lives of others. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Let me just be clear here. Paul's like, I kind of want to die. But not because he is in, in, in just excited about death because he doesn't care about his life. He's thinking, I kind of want to die in that sense because he doesn't want to die. He wants to be with Christ. So he tries to explain it to us. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. May, may you be reminded right now that in your life, when you are with Christ, it is far better. Like to put it mildly, <laughs> to, to underestimate it, to, 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 to talk about it like you're British. <laughs> it's far better. <laughs> it's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul knows it's better to be, he wants to depart and be with Christ, but he sees a purpose for his life right now. And in, in that purpose, he finds motivation to continue pressing on and serving because what he cares about more even than his experience in life is the honor of Christ through his life. Let me say that again. What he cares about more than his experience in life is the honor of Christ that comes through his life. That is key. That might be a lesson you're learning as you're suffering with great ill and great hardship and great pain. And it's not easy. Those are not easy lessons to learn. And they come through suffering. Like, like Jesus said about Paul, when Paul first got saved, he says to Ananias, who's going to come and, you know, uh, uh, baptize him. He's going to bring him in. Um, he says, I will, I will teach him how much he has to suffer for me. There's lessons in our suffering. And I don't like it. But I'm, I'm so glad that that's true as opposed to not true. What if my suffering had no purpose or point? Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and the joy of, of in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He wants to leave and be with Christ, but he'll stay with them. Now, you might be looking at your life and thinking, but Mike, I don't, I don't know that like I don't have like Paul's ministry, right? Like if I had Paul's ministry to massive numbers of people having this massive impact, that'd be a lot more encouragement to go through my current suffering because I'd be like, there's the glory of Christ coming through my life. But can I say that um, we're not all Paul's, the Apostle Paul, but we can all learn from him. Your current situation does have benefits even if you currently aren't seeing them that well. Um, um, let me see if I can find another verse that would talk about this. Um, um, I'm thinking. <laughs> um, here's here's a related verse. This is Second uh, Corinthians twelve five. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but not on my own behalf. Um, on, on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Paul boasts of his weaknesses. What is this thing that Paul looks at his suffering, his hardship, his weaknesses, and he thinks, I'm, I'm going to boast about that. There's something good about that. He says here in um, uh, 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Right? He, he was suffering with them as he was with them in weakness. 
And then it says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the, but the power of God. It's possible that God is doing this in your life right now. That what he's, one of the things he's teaching you through your, through your disabilities and your hardships is to trust in the power of God and not the power of man, not your own power. In that is great glory to Christ where you become a Christian who says, Lord, I just lean on you. I'm not enough. I'm over my head. I'm overwhelmed by these issues. I just lean on you. You're strong. I'm weak. I'm going to rejoice in that weakness only because when you zoom out at the world, you see a weak person depending on their savior and trusting in him. And that brings glory to Christ. And it's worth the glory of Christ. What I'm saying is that even in even if all we're doing in life is suffering, there can be glory to Christ in our lives. We don't have to have these giant public ministries to say that there is. I hope that helps you in some way. Uh, David uh, Tagawa has a question. Is it more accurate to say that Jesus' death was sufficient for all rather than he paid for all? Otherwise, wouldn't there be people in hell right now for sins that Jesus already paid for? Um, is it more accurate to say that Jesus' death was sufficient for all rather than he paid for all? I guess, David, I'd want to start asking you a series of questions about what you mean by sufficient for all. So, what do you mean it was sufficient for all? Because like if I walk into like a store and I pay for everything in the store, say I buy everything in the store and my wallet has enough cash to pay for everything. I buy everything in the store and then I walk out of the store and I announce to the, to, to the people like, go in and take whatever you want. And people go in and they take various things, but then they leave a bunch behind. And there's a bunch of people now without sofas and chairs and without fridge and stuff like that. And then you could say, you know, it's 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 a tragedy that Mike paid for stuff for people to have kitchen stuff and furniture. I'm making this analogy up as I go, so forgive how ridiculous it is. Um, but while he paid for them, they didn't actually enjoy it. And so, wouldn't it be better to say that Mike's payment was actually just sufficient? Like Mike's um, Mike's offering was sufficient for people to all get furniture, but not everybody got furniture because you know, they didn't want it or whatever. So what does that look like in the analogy? Do I walk into the department store now and I've got a wallet full of cash and I pay, but I only pay for the items that I know people will pick up. What did you mean then by saying Mike's activity was sufficient? His offering, meaning that the payment was sufficient to pay for everything, but he didn't pay for everything. What does that look like? Did I pay or not pay? Did I... I, I had the money, but I didn't. Well, then how is it sufficient? If I kept the money in my wallet, then how was my offering sufficient to pay for everything in the store? I don't understand how Jesus's death was sufficient to pay for their sins if it didn't also pay for their sins. Meaning what? He It wasn't sufficient. It was potentially could have paid, but that's not the same as saying sufficient. Jesus's death, he dies for sin like as a category. He dies for humans as a category. That's how I view it. Not just your individual sins, but sin, period. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think in John is talking about all of the world. Now, I, there's several verses that would, I think, support this idea, but probably, probably the one that I lean on the most, and I have long video content on the topic, um, is... This one. 
My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's talking about Christians here, right? He is the propitiation. Now that means you paid. Okay, like if he's the propitiation for my sins, that means he's not just potentially sufficient or something. Like he actually accomplished payment for my sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there's our sins and then there's the sins of the whole world. These are two categories. Ours are Christians. Sins of the world are non-Christians. Now you could say that give a few years later and in 1 John 2, uh, he wrote about people called him the world. Many more people got saved a few years later. And so some of the people who were of the world there are going to eventually be Christians. But when he says the whole world, he's talking about the whole world, not just the world people who will be Christians one day. Now, I have a whole long video on this topic, a couple videos. Me and James White did a little back and forth on the issue, and you guys could check that out. Um, I'll put a link in the video description to that. If you want more, I go through this in great detail. We deal with a doctrine of limited atonement, which I think is uh, probably one of the easiest doctrines of TULIP to push back against, and um, which is why it's the least popular. Um, there's... Of all the, if you asked uh, all Calvinists in the world what one doctrine of Calvinism that is often associated that they reject, it'll be the most popular one to reject will be tulip, uh, of tulip will be limited atonement. So finally, you get your put your last pushback, which which is, uh, wouldn't there be people in hell right now for sins that Jesus already paid for? Um, yes, but the, the but the payment for their sin is not sufficient for them to be forgiven. They must also be reconciled to God and they must then come under the covering of Christ. So they've rejected the sufficient payment for their sins. It was also, it was sufficient and a payment. That's what I'm saying here, not just one or the other. Um, they've rejected that sufficient payment for their sins. So yeah, they, and they're not in hell at the moment. Eschatologically speaking, there's a future time where they will be. Um, um, so yeah, I don't really see the problem with that. I think it it magnifies the grace of God to show that sufficient offering and payment was made, but you rejected it. You don't want a relationship with God. You don't want to know God. You don't want to be saved, uh, ultimately. So I don't really see the problem with that. Now I, my, I have a whole series. I'll put it in the links in the links down below too, called on, on penal substitutionary atonement on this whole doctrine, where I go through it in great detail, dealing with philosophical objections and biblical objections and all kinds of debates. I will link that below. If if this is an issue that matters to you, who's watching, whoever's watching or listening. You will ch check the links and you'll see that that in the description. Number 14, Graham Pearson says, how do you interpret 2 Peter 3.4 in context? I've heard young earth creationist people compare the mockers to people who say rates like erosion or radioactive decay are unchanging and deny the biblical creation account. All right. Let's just get controversial, shall we? Um, uh, I'll say this as I step into this verse with you guys. I consider this to be an in-house discussion about the age of the earth, even the extent of the flood to a degree. I consider it to be an in-house discussion, meaning that I think Christians can disagree. That doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter. But there's already somebody in the comments in the live chat probably freaking out and, and condemning people. And I think that you need to slow down. And uh, for those who think Christians have to agree on every doctrine, um, let's just say this. The vast majority of Christians throughout the world would not have agreed with that doctrine. 
So that's going to be a problem. All right. So here's Second uh, Peter 3, 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? This is about people, wicked people in the end times. They're going to make a claim. Where's the promise of his coming? Right. Where's, where's Jesus? Isn't Jesus supposed to come back? He hasn't come back yet. Right. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We've always lived in this like life where God is not intervening and, and, and that sort of thing. There is no coming judgment. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. God's the one who made it. First fact they overlook. God made the world. What do you, you, you doubt he's going to come in judgment? He created it. He can judge it. Second fact. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. There was a flood. The world that existed, then existed, was flooded and perished. But the same, uh, that's the second fact they ignore, the flood and the judgment that came in the flood. The point here, I think, is to say, hey, God judged the world before. That's a sample of the fact that he will judge the world again. But the same, uh, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But we're looking, he'll go on and say, we're looking for the recreation, the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. Um, so what is going on in verse six in particular? Uh, you said first Peter three, four. Oh, I kind of see how the young creationists might be using this verse. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So if you look at like say Ken Ham and some of those, some of those guys, they're going to say, Hey, um, Young Earth Creationist Camps, one of the big problems with modern science is something called uniformitarianism. And this this belief is that all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're going to like relate these two together. And maybe that's what your question is about, is, is reading uniformitarianism into um, this phrase. So let's just briefly mention that. Um, uniformitarianism is the idea that, say, for instance, radioactive decay rates are the same today as they were in the past. Okay, they're uniform. Um, basically, the, the the processes that happen in the universe when we look at with, with say, examining how physics is taking place and the interaction of, of, of bodies, gravity, all that kind of thing, the speed of light, all that stuff is the same in the past as we observe it being now. And the question is, is that what 1 Peter 3, 4 is saying? Is it saying, hey, there's going to come a time where people are going to think radioactive decay rates in the past are the same as they are today? I mean, do I have to comment on that <laughs> if, that's, if that's the perspective they're taking? What is, what is on Peter's mind? What is on the, the, the Holy Spirit's you know, mind as this is being communicated to us, right? They will say, where's the promise of his coming? They're doubting the coming of Christ for ever since what the fathers fell asleep. We have old people that have died and everything's just been going and going and going the way it is. This is not about scientific uniformitarianism. This is about denying the coming judgment because you're basically just skeptical that God will ever judge the world. You think that this, you're basically kind of having a um, materialistic view of the universe that excludes supernatural intervention from God. So deism or atheism would be a better fit to this than scientific uniformitarianism. That would be my response to that. Um, when it talks about the world that then existed, as far as the the big debate 
we're going to have between, say, many young Earth creationists and many old Earth creationists is also going to be in the, the extent of the flood. So a lot of older Earth people are going to say, hey, when it says world, uh, they don't think it means planet. Um, they're not really super thoughtful and aware of the planet. They're not exactly thinking about the planet when they say world. They're thinking about people, which is why it uses the word perished. The world perished. And so maybe it was the people, the individual. So the world can be used like when God so loved the world. It's, it's talking about people there, not earth, the planet. The emphasis is individuals. I'm not saying who's right in that debate. I just want you guys to be aware of it. If, if you guys are like, a lot of my audience is like me. You've been exposed more to the young earth creationist views. So it's just helpful to be aware of some of the discussions that are going on. So yeah, I'm just going to read your question again, Graham. Make sure I got it before I move on. Um, you said, how do I interpret 2 Peter 3, 4 in context? Right, That was my interpretation, uh, denying God's coming judgment and supernatural intervention in history. I've heard young earth creationist people compare the mockers to people who say rates like erosion and radioactive decay are unchanging and deny the biblical creation account. Right, I have heard that as well, and I reject it uh, as being unrelated to this passage. Doesn't mean that they're wrong about their beliefs about radioactive decay rates. It means this passage... I think should not be used to support their views. Question number 15. Philagape says, how important is a church's statement of faith? If a church has a basic correct statement, but adds and emphasizes serious errors in their services, would you think they're real about it? Um, no, I, I'm, I'm long skeptical of statements of faith um, <laughs> because uh, churches are, um, they're, they're multi-generational creatures is what they are. So if I start a church today and I have like really solid statement of faith, I believe really solid statement of faith, really high view of the word of God, you come back a generation or two later, even 20 years later sometimes, and you've got leadership and people in positions who don't really agree with the statement of faith exactly. And sometimes they won't change the statement of faith because it's tradition, but also because they're associated with another church and another group of churches. And so they don't want to mess with it, but also because liberal theologians and, and liberal, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about politics here, but theology, liberal theologians, they tend to bend words like contortionists and they'll read a statement of faith and they'll just say, I agree with that, but they don't really agree with it because they've redefined the words. So for those reasons, a statement of faith is only as good as the church holds to it. Now, if you meet a church and you're like, wow, these people are transparent, they have integrity, they're passionate about these things, um, they may well hold to their statement of faith. But in addition to this, there's another problem, which is individuals in a church might find one element of a statement of faith they don't agree with, but still attend the church, even still be a pastor at the church. And they just agree, I just won't, I won't talk on that topic. I think it's secondary. It's in the statement of faith, but... So for this reason, statements of faith <clears throat> can be divorced from the reality of the church. And so I find them to be sort of helpful. Um, I'll put it this way. A statement of faith, <clears throat> as I'm like reading, looking at websites, looking at ministries, a statement of faith is better at, at showing you something's wrong than showing you what is right. Because churches that are messed up will still sometimes have a good statement of faith. But you don't really ever have a solid church that cares about theology, cares about Christ, cares about the word of God and holds faithfully to it, that has a bad statement of faith, right? So, so, um, a bad statement of faith. Yeah. You can bet that church is messed up. <laughs> so yeah, that's anyways, that's, that's my perspective on it. Um, yeah. What happens on Sunday is more telling than what happens, uh, on page seven of the statement of faith. Yeah. <clears throat> In 
Into the Light has a question. Mike, can you help settle this? Maybe. <laughs> I've heard it said that the word brothers in Matthew 25, 40 refers only to believing brothers. I believe it refers to anyone in need. How do you interpret this? Thank you. Matthew 25, 40. Let's look at it and let's look for indications that might help us answer the question in context because context is king. The king will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to back up and read this parable in greater detail. It can be a little long, I think, this, this one, but we're going to read it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Isn't that interesting? The nations are gathered, but he separates the people individually. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. Here we go. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Notice it's all about what they did to him. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you or a strange, you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I'll, I'll just read the rest of it too so we can see how strongly this is emphasized. Then we, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, the some of the elements that might help us identify who's my brothers is that Jesus I, Jesus is the, is the coming judge and he's judging people not just based on how they treat somebody, but how they treat his brothers. He calls them his brothers. Now, since the kingdom is the setting of being in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, I think that leans towards thinking that these brothers are Christians, are believers, are, are people who believe in Christ, that they're the brothers. Uh, in addition to that, I'll point out there's other related scriptures to this, which is like, say, when, when Paul is persecuting the church, Jesus comes to him and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's persecuting Christians, right? And he takes that personally. The church is also the church of Christ. Jesus also refers to us as his brothers. He makes us his brothers through adoption, right? We become co-heirs with Christ. All of the context of these other elements in scripture seem to confirm that brothers here is probably Christians. How they handled and treated Christians. So I think that that's how I would interpret that. Now, I don't want to make a mistake with this verse and think that's the only people Jesus cares about. He's, make, he's doing a parable. He's drawing out a point. But nowhere does he say, and that's the only thing anyone's ever judged for, right? Like, obviously, God wants you to take care of the, the poor and, and, and the, the weak 
and the suffering and visit those in prison who are wrongly imprisoned in particular. But there is an emphasis in scripture that we do this especially for the body of Christ. So I think that an example of this could be in Galatians 6. I'm looking, I'm looking. Ah, okay. Galatians chapter six, verse, uh, verse 10, ultimately, but I'll back up a little bit. It says, let us not grow weary uh, of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Okay. That, that's a Christian principle. Do good to everyone, but especially it says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why? Because we're brothers, Brother, brothers here, meaning men and women here, the, 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 the term refers to, can refer to men and women together. And so we're in Christ that we as Christians want to do good to all. So yes, I want to take care of the poor. Yes. I want to take care of the starving. Yes. I want to feed the hungry. Yes. I want to clothe the people who don't have them clothes, but I especially want to do this for Christians. My heart especially goes out to those who've been covered by the blood of Christ, who are not part of this world, who have rejected it and are part of God's eternal kingdom. Just like you clothe your own kids before you clothe your neighbor's kids. So Christians, it's right, I think, good to bring aid and assistance more, especially to those who are of the household of faith, but not exclusively. Number 17, Felicia Walden says, my friend of 15 years started practicing witchcraft. I ended our friendship because I felt unsafe. Was I wrong to do that? Can I still be close friends with her? What scripture can I take to her? Um, so Felicia, the, your, your friend needs outreach. Like she definitely needs outreach. Like who's going to tell her, you know? Um, but where, where you draw the line is where it's causing, causing you compromise. So your relationship with God is more important than your relationship with this friend. Your relationship with her is, is secondary to that. I love God with all my heart, my soul, mind, and strength. I love my neighbor as myself. So I'm going to reach out to her. I want to see her say, but I'm not going to compromise myself. I'm not going to put myself in spiritually compromised situations in order to do that. This might mean you don't see her as often. It might mean you don't, you don't get involved in certain activities that she's going to do, but it doesn't mean you can't still outreach to her. If she's naming the name of Christ, I would go to the church that she goes to and I would involve the leaders. I'm like, hey, help me here. My friend is making these decisions. You guys don't even know this, the leaders, but she's getting into witchcraft. If she's not a Christian, she doesn't name the name of Christ or she calls herself Christian but doesn't even go to church, um, I'm going to show her scripture. I want to bring, bring her the word of God, show her that these things are bad. But something that might help is to realize that witches, if, I don't know that much about modern witchcraft and witches and stuff like that. I'd like to learn more actually, just so that I could better evangelize and witness to them. But they generally, from my understanding, seem to think they're good. Like they all think they're good people and they're doing good things. They don't think I'm doing, I'm doing, making deals with demons. Like they, nobody thinks this, right? They think that I'm a good person. I'm doing white magic. I'm doing good magic. I'm doing good witchcraft. It's just, it's all just about wishy-washy vibes and things like that. And um, I think what you want to, show them is that this is, this is not true. So I would, I would just kind of want to start with, there's a God who made everything. We're accountable to him. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's the coming judge of all. And he calls you to repent of that. In other words, I just want to preach the gospel to her. I want to give her the gospel of Christ, but understand that her perception of witchcraft is that it's not, it's probably a good thing in her mind. So think of ways to try to explain to her that that's not the case. But this is our this is our world we live in. People think that sin is good. 
the depravity of our culture is not of culture of human culture is never to just say sin's bad and I'm embarrassed about it. It's to brag about it and, and call it good, right? What does Las Vegas call itself? Sin City. It's it's a brag, right? What happens in Vegas stays. It's a brag. There, there's no shame there. Part of preaching the gospel is restoring proper shame to those who reject it. So God, God give you wisdom, learn a little bit about, ask her questions, maybe start with that, ask her some questions, understand her perspective, where she's coming from, and then you'll better be informed to be able to reach, reach her with truth. Um, Josie Garrido says, what is a carnal Christian? Um, I, I'm going to answer this briefly because we're, we're getting, I'm out of time, <laughs> but um, a carnal Christian I'll say is, um, there is such a thing as a carnal Christian, you know, potentially well, there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. First Corinthians talks about this. He says like, hey, you guys are carnal. Um, but when you become, when you are engaging in carnality as a Christian, it puts you in a new category. And the category is Christian with a question mark, not Christian with a period. When I'm following Jesus, I have a proclamation of faith in Christ and my life shows that it's real. I'm Christian, period. When people look at me, they can conclude fairly and easily he's a genuine follower of Christ. When I'm living a carnal lifestyle where I follow my flesh and I'm not walking in the spirit, where I will not repent of obvious and egregious sins, I'm Christian question mark. I'm not saying the carnal Christian's not saved. I'm saying the confidence you can have about a carnal Christian goes away. And so we should approach carnal Christians not by trying to determine whether they're saved or not, but by just calling them to repentance. Now, if you're a carnal Christian and you're listening to this and you're thinking, Mike, I really don't want to change. I just want affirmation that I'm still saved. That's all I'm looking for. I, I'm not going to give it to you because I don't know that I can give it to you with scripture because you are Christian with a question mark. But this is not to condemn you. Well, then I'm just going to go into the world. Okay, well, if you want to be dumb on purpose, that's up to you. <laughs> the solution is to get rid of the question mark and put a period there by showing through your life that your claims about faith in Christ are genuine claims. That is what a carnal Christian is. They're a Christian with a question mark. Um, are they saved? Uh, they very well may be, or they, or they might not be. I can't tell because their life does not demonstrate the genuineness of their faith. Um, now, every Christian struggles with sin and some are so hyper aware of that issue that they think they're carnal if they ever have a sin issue or struggle with sin. You're always going to struggle with sin um, and you, you need wisdom to try to determine the difference between a normal Christian who struggles with sin versus a carnal Christian but I'm talking about the carnal one. Number 19, She's Moonlight says, how can I share the gospel with people who have a schizoaffective disorder and severe depression? I know a man who can't comprehend that he has worth and value. How can I show him God loves him? Okay, well, I mean, obviously your first question is a really big one and I don't have huge answers for you there I, I because I don't have great knowledge of schizoaffective affective disorder. And I think that severe depression is also something where it's like, I approach those in, the people individually. Like I learn, I learn what I don't know about schizoaffective disorder can be covered by me learning about you. I know about you. I know how you think. Okay. I don't need to just have a technical analysis of a disorder, which could help, but I can learn the person. I had a buddy who was schizophrenic and we just talked about it. And he, he would tell me things like, Hey Mike, um, if I ever don't call you, if I ever am, am kind of like standoffish, it's probably because I'm starting to think that you hate me. Like sometimes I, I think that. So like maybe just, you know, give me a call and tell me that you, that you don't. And so I learned in that relationship, like if he started getting, becoming distant, I had to like 
do that for him. And you see what I mean? Like know the person that helps, know the person, understand them. I think as far as the question of uh, how can I show him God loves him, I think the answer to this is is ultimately the cross. Um, and if this feels like a cliche, it's only because we're missing the point about it. The cross shows us God loves us. And so when we want to show other Christians God loves them, we should show them the cross. So one of the best ways is to demonstrate just the cross. Talk about Jesus, like how he lived the perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins. Would you die for someone you don't love? Would you take their sin upon yourself just so that they could be redeemed? He took on our humanity. He took on our wickedness. He took on our sin. The cross is what tells me God loves me when my heart doesn't want to tell me God loves me. The cross is what tells me God loves me when my mind is going off on some tangent and some other little, oh yeah, but, yeah, but. I'm like, dude, Jesus died on the cross. Do not, do not push aside his sacrifice by doubting his love for you. Another way God shows his love for us is by choosing wicked people to forgive. There's the thief on the cross who's there being crucified. And he's like, I deserve this. So you might ask your friend, do you deserve that? Do you deserve to be crucified? Well, I probably do. Maybe I do. I don't know. But Jesus still loved him enough to forgive him and say, oh, you're going to be with me today in paradise. Or how about, oh, I've done bad things. I've thought horrible things. I've done wicked things. Okay, well, what about Paul the apostle? Like God literally picked Paul the apostle because he was a bad guy. I don't know if you know this. Like one of Paul's qualifications for apostleship was total bad guy. And he even says that God chose him as an example so that people would look at Paul and say, if God could use someone who was basically uh, assisted murdering people in the church, persecuting the body of Christ, putting in prison those who are, who are, you know, Jesus says, you're persecuting me to Paul. And, and Paul says he did this so that people would know he loves them and has grace for them, that they would see an example in me, the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, so that, so that even if you look at yourself and think, no, I'm too bad, you'd be like, well, that's why he picked Paul, because he was bad. If we think we have to be good enough for God to love us, we have misunderstood a fundamental aspect of the gospel of Christ. Think about it. All right, question number 20. Um, what does Matthew 12, 32 mean? I thought all sins can be forgiven through Jesus. Um, okay, this will be a third thing I'm going to put in the in the comments down below. I will put a link to my video on this topic. I, do, I did a full serious study on the topic of the unforgivable sin. And I did a teaching on it in my Mark series. Um, and I'll put a link down below for it for you guys if you want to check it out. And, and, and in that teaching, I give a thorough summary. I start the video with a summary because some of you are like, I just have to know the answer. I start the video because I know it's it's breaking your heart and your soul to not know the answer to this question for some people. So I start the video with, here's the summary. Now, now I'll explain how I get there. But the verse says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Um, ultimately, this is going to come down to the rejection of Christ, the rejection of the active work of Christ, and even kind of like the knowing rejection of the, um, of the evidence of, of the truthfulness of the gospel. Here, it's the miracles that Jesus is performing that demonstrate that he is who he says he is and the knowing rejection of that. I think that's what it comes down to, but I have a fuller explanation going into great detail. I will link below. Here, we're close to the end of my video. You guys, this is a great thing for you to check out if you don't know the answer to it. I, and just so you guys know the context, for a couple of years, I would not answer this question. 
Like people would ask in Q&As and I'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to answer that because I just didn't feel secure in my understanding. Not because I'm embarrassed or ashamed. I just don't want to, the way I can keep myself from guiding you wrong is by not answering questions I'm not sure about the answer to. And then I spent um, a whole little project trying to study this passage and understand it in the different gospels. And I did a teaching on it and I think it's really helpful. Um, so I will point you guys to that and I'll put it on the end screen and all that stuff. But we have a bonus question for today. And the bonus question comes from Alana uh, Quinones, and it is, what is the perfect number of cats? <laughs> How many cats do you have currently? And we need more Moxie time. Uh, Moxie's not with us today. I mean, she's she's in the house somewhere. Um, perfect number of cats. I have no idea. I have no idea what the perfect number of cats is. I mean, for some people, it's a zero. <laughs> for some, it's it's a... It's, it's 12, uh, and, and although I would think that's never the perfect number. Um, uh, how many cats do we have currently? Two and a half. We currently have two and a half cats, is what we tell people when they ask, and the reason is uh, because there's an outside cat who I, I, I first met when we had our nieces over, and they were playing in the backyard with this cat with string, and I was like, where did this cat come from? They're and the cat was jumping up, and I was like, get away from this feral animal, you know. But it turned out that this cat was super, super friendly. Just like go up to anybody you want to pet, pet me and sit with you and stuff. And um, so we have, we call him our half cat. And so Toby is our half cat. Our neighbor named him Toby. And he kind of goes around the neighborhood and everybody pets him and, and stuff like that. But we also take care of him. We feed him. We give him a place to sleep outside. He's our outside. He's very much an outside cat. He's got like a weird funky eyeball and a big scar on his back. And he's, he's just a gnarled outside cat. Um, but our other two cats are inside Moxie and Mika, Mika, who never shows up, hardly ever shows up for anything on camera and Moxie who likes to sit next to me sometimes. So those are our cats. And, um, yeah, I think dude, pets are awesome. Pets are great, man. They offer some great companionship. They're not humans. They don't replace humans, but yeah, they're nice. They're nice. I think, uh, better than, uh, antidepressants sometimes. I'm sure. I mean, I don't know. I haven't used them, but I have used cats. <laughs> All right, you guys, uh, Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, give you peace. May you remember that Jesus is the light of the world and that you as a Christian, you're the light of the world and that we, we shouldn't fall into a rut. I know this sounds random, but we shouldn't fall into the rut of thinking that our primary purpose, our primary impact of being the light of the world is merely offering criticism about current events, but we should recognize that godly character is our is, is the way in which we will be the light of the world as we preach the gospel and that that's our focus. One of the things I see personally with social media and, and Twitter and Facebook and, and YouTube and all this is that we're sort of always being told what to be thinking about. Here's the topics we're dealing with today, everybody. Here's the issues we're dealing with today. But when a Christian as the light of the world comes into the room, what they want to do is they want to be like, all those other issues are secondary. The number one thing is the gospel of Christ that God is is bringing the world back to himself through the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, calling you to repentance, that you might come and trust in him who died and rose for you from the dead, that you might be saved, that you might enter into his eternal kingdom. And everything else that they're telling us is the topic of the day is secondary. And I think if we remember that, it'll give us good perspective so that we don't get overly wrapped up in bitter social media battles. <laughs> Anyway, I will see you guys um, 
next Friday, I'll have a couple little short videos coming out this week, this coming week. And then Monday, not this Monday, but the following Monday is the next in the Women in Ministry study. I just need more time to prep. I'm doing a lot of content. It's going to be a long video. So get rested up this Monday because Monday, the 11th of April, is the women in ministry going through the New Testament examples. Were women apostles? Were they elders? Were they teaching pastors? Like not only pastors who taught, but were they actually teaching pastors how to be pastors? That's a a Craig Keener claim. Were they um, uh, synagogue leaders at the time, right? Was uh, was Phoebe, the the lady who carried the letter to the Romans, was she also the one who taught Romans to the Romans? That's something like... uh, several egalitarian scholars claim and I spent a lot of time studying to see if if it was true and I'll give you all my answers coming up April 11th so take care God bless you guys